0: Welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. We're going to be joined this hour as we are twice a month by James Corbett of The Corbett Report. The Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source, and he talks about just about everything. He provides podcasts, interviews, articles, and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to Big Brother Police State, eugenics, geopolitics, and central banking fraud, and more. He's been living in Japan, James has, since 2004. He started the Corbett Report website in 2007, which is an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. And we thank him very much for joining us today, CorbettReport.com and FukushimaUpdate.com. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Power Hour, James.
1: Well, thank you once again for having me on. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Joyce.
0: absolutely it is so nice to have you here and uh, maybe you can give us an idea of what is going on in the uh, financial markets and uh, we're hearing of um, more and more unrest in the eu and the possibility that uh, people are going to be losing their savings in the eu i guess they didn't hear about cyprus perhaps Uh, what are you hearing about what's happening in the european union
1: well, there is a really concerted propaganda effort going on at the moment to convince us that uh, Europe is stabilizing and that they're underway in some sort of recovery. But I think anyone who's looking the, at what's underlying this is not really believing it, um, because on the surface, what part of the, the, the crisis in recent years has been about is the so-called uh, sovereign debt crisis and the uh, the banking, uh, sorry, the uh, the bond yields going up in certain countries like Greece and Italy and Spain to the point where it seemed like they might not be able to finance, uh, finance their debt at any uh, any unless they had significant help and that has uh, that has calmed down somewhat um, the the bond yields are, are back down um, to lower levels than they were and this has given them the ability to portray that there's some sort of recovery going on but of course the the epidemic of unemployment including of course youth unemployment just reaching ridiculous levels in a lot of these countries um, to the point where they're they're reaching all-time highs I think is the the real underlying um, one of the underlying factors that we can see is is that the idea of a recovery is just all hot air here. So I think what we have is going going on right now is a concerted propaganda effort to tell us that everything's all okay, whereas all the data is is really pointing to a different story. And just another indication of that uh, came out just recently. Apparently, Italy has just uh, passed a law meaning that anyone who imports um, who has wire transfers imported into the Country into their bank accounts, uh, that is money wired into their accounts from abroad, will have 20% of that skimmed off the top and held. Um, as as compensation against tax. Um, And and until they can prove that that is not taxable income, they will not see that 20%. So basically, um, as a zero hedge headline has it, um, basically Italians are now money launderers until they are proven innocent. And that's just another example of the types of capital controls that are going on in Italy right now. And just another sign, I think, of the kind of destabilization that's taking place in the banking sector there.
0: If you were to name the countries that are in the worst shape, I mean, your opinion, I'm talking about the uh, the Corbett Report opinion, what would be the countries in list of uh, ascending or in list of order, you know, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, what's the worst country in the world financially right now?
1: That's a very difficult thing to say because, again, it it uh, so many of these are, are dominoes that depend on one on another. So it's difficult to to really separate them. And anything that happens to destabilize one market is likely going to affect another. Such as, for example, what we saw in the previous year with the Indian rupee being greatly affected by uh, what was happening in in the United States and and pa- people basically capital flying out of the country towards the U.S. and that really uh, destabilizing India. So I think it it. I I would be very hesitant to to say that, you know, such and such is the worst country because, again, it depends on so many different factors. But certainly we know that, for example, I mean, Greece is, again, it continues to be in a very precarious position and, in fact, is on the verge of its uh, third bailout from the so-called Troika, the IMF, the EU and uh, the European Central Bank. Um, and so we we know that uh, there's there's uh, continuing problems there. Um, but I think really one of the 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 big unspoken elephants in the room when it comes to what's happening um, globally right now is is China. We've talked about this a little bit, but uh, but again, just it continues to be. Really staggering to look at the amount of debt that is being created in China right now. The debt-fueled um, economic growth that they've had, specifically in the past uh, five or six years, it has been almost uh, completely 100% financed by this uh, growing debt bubble that they're creating. And just to, again to put those figures in perspective, in the month of January alone, the largest uh, measure of debt creation—sorry, uh, credit creation—in uh, China uh, shows that they created 425 billion dollars of uh, of debt and uh, to put that number in perspective during that same month the Federal Reserve created $75 billion through their QE3 program the Bank of Japan created $74 billion through their uh, liquidity injection program for a combined total of $149 billion of credit Com- contrast that to the $425 billion that China created in the month of January alone and that's not an anomaly that's happening month after month after month as China just continues to grow at a, at a colossal rate and all of this is being fueled by the the growth of their banking sector and uh, the credit creation that they're they're engaged in right now. and that is a bubble that will burst at some point. and when it does, it's not going to look pretty for for basically anyone on the planet right now.
0: Well, that's going to affect the United States. and what is that domino going to? what is that going to do to the United States uh, with uh, the financial troubles that China now is experiencing?
1: Well, unfortunately, uh, exactly right. I mean, everything is connected these days. And it used to be, they used to say that if uh, uh, the U.S. sneezed, the world would catch a cold. Well, unfortunately, it, uh, it definitely works uh, in re- reciprocal fashion these days. So that when China starts to seize up, um, given that it is it has been the manufacturing base of, uh, of Western, uh, the Western world for the last decade or so, and increasingly so, with the, uh, the growing trade deficit indicating just how much uh, it, of the the goods that Americans buy come from China. I'm sure not. no one in the audience needs to be reminded of that. If uh, China really starts to seize up and contract, then what we're looking at is the the end of the, the economic order that we have in place at the moment, at any rate. And, uh, and again, o- only the people who are really situated for that and the people who can play multiple currencies off against each other and uh, the real fat cats at the top of the system will be able to survive. I'm sure they'll have no problem. But for the average American worker, the average American uh, purchaser, I mean, it's going to be uh, not pretty, I would say, um, as we start to see basically the unwinding of the, the cheap Chinese slave-made goods that have been the productive engine of, of much of uh, the American economic experience of the past decade or so, and uh, and which has basically allowed Americans to maintain a certain standard of living, even as all of their other metrics of, of wealth start to decrease?
0: Well, I think that our financial situation is so precarious here, and yet it's not being talked about. I mean, they're encouraging people to invest, 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 and of course, the stock market. What is it up to? You know, Dow futures, uh, 160 uh, 16, 160 or whatever, and it keeps going up, um, even though they took you know a bit of a dive the the other day. Now, the Nikkei in Japan, you know, a lot of people are pointing to that as to being one of the most precarious um, situations around the world.
1: Oh, absolutely. Nikkei uh, is a good sign of what is to come, I think, for for a lot of these failed quantitative easing liquidity injection programs. Because again, for people who don't know, the Bank of Japan is engaged in pretty much the same thing that Federal Reserve is in terms of just creating liquidity and trying to inject it into the markets in a a way that will uh, supposedly bolster the economy and all of the the hoopla that has surrounded this so-called Abenomics. And I, unfortunately, all we've seen here in Japan is a brief, so short, small spike in, in GDP, which really didn't last very long and really didn't amount to very much at all. Um, wasn't even compared to the usual kinds of uh, peaks and valleys we see in, in GDP uh, as it as it rises and falls. It wasn't even, it was hardly noticeable even, um, the little blip that, that we received last year for when people got excited about Abenomics. But that's starting to come down now. And also the Nikkei uh, is starting to come back down and uh, and it ha- is nowhere near the levels that it was at back in the 1980s during the bubble period. So, what we're basically seeing is the last gasp of these these central banks uh, trying to do the only thing that they really can do. It's not that they're they're uh, they're hit- they're 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 just uh, uncreative or something. It's that there's really nothing else that the central banks can do with the the tools that they have um, except just pump more money into the markets, and that has worked for an awfully long time. And they will continue to do it until it stops working but when when we do hit that wall and it just stops working and stops having the effect that's when we see the unwinding of all of this credit creation and expansion that we've seen over the last several years and that's when things start to get really ugly
0: It seems like every time that Janet Yellen even talks about um, the the stopping of the monies, the giving away and flooding the market with all the monies uh, or the credit, excuse me it seems like there's a hiccup in the market. What do you think is going to happen once they actually do start to pull back? Or will they? Or are they just, you know, I mean, is this going to go out infinitum?
1: It's, uh, well, I mean, that's a very good question. It's looking more and more like that they really have painted themselves into a corner and that they really can't uh, ease off on the gas pedal, at least not very much. And uh, as as we've seen, of course, they did start the taper in recent months. They've tapered 10 billion uh, per month in the last uh, couple of months. But uh, but Janet Yellen has been very adamant that this is not some sort of set plan that they're working to and that they could, you know, they could ease, ease up on the tapering if, if need be, etc. And she's been very careful about that. And something that was uh, embedded in the uh, the January release from the Federal Reserve that not a lot of people paid attention to is the fact that they're not now, so so focused on the six point five percent unemployment figure, which they which was supposedly um, one of the, the 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 benchmarks for this QE three program. Um, if they reached six point five percent unemployment, they could start unwinding the program, basically. But since we're almost pressing up against that through the manipulated, phony, uh, you know, completely made-up numbers that they use for unemployment, um, now they're starting to say, well, maybe we have to start looking at other metrics for, uh, for judging whether the program should continue or not. So, so they're not ready to ease up on this, um, and they're ready to, to slam that gas pedal back down. And pay, pay. Yes, absolutely.
0: They have to. They have no choice. We'll be back with James Corbett, and J.D. wants to talk about Bitcoin with uh, James Corbett after this four-minute break. Stay tuned to the Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. It is 24 minutes after the hour, wherever you're sitting. And, of course, James Corbett, our guest today, is sitting in uh, Japan. That's where he lives. And he is an expert on so many different things. And I love talking to him about a lot of issues. Um, One of the things, though, that uh, J.D., I know, is really interested in and wants to discuss is Bitcoin, because we're hearing a lot about it. JD, your thoughts on Bitcoin and and what you'd like to ask James, please. Well,
2: I'm still on the fence with Bitcoin as to whether or not I feel like it's a viable move away from, you know, the centralized petrodollar. Uh, And James, you're obviously way more intelligent when it comes to that kind of thing than I am. But we're watching Bitcoin now. It looks like it went down all the way to a low of about $230 over the weekend. It's made a little bit of a rebound now. But is that a bubble that's bursting, in your opinion? And or what, you know, what's going on with that? What do you think about it in terms of viability?
1: Is it a bubble that's bursting? Actually, the answer to that is kind of yes and no. Um, simultaneously, it's kind of a strange thing because the the price of Bitcoin isn't something that's that's just a standard price that's that's 100 for all Bitcoin transactions anywhere. Um, the the price of Bitcoin, quote unquote, um, in in U.S. dollars, for example, is determined on various different exchanges, and one of the exchanges, Mt. Gox in Japan, actually, uh, which was formerly I think the largest uh, Bitcoin um, uh, exchange until one opened up in China that was larger, but um, It has traditionally been one of the the largest and most stable, but it has been having a lot of problems recently, um, including some um, potential Bitcoin problems and exploits that they've been admitting to, um, which has really plummeted uh, the the price of, of Bitcoin on the Mt. Gox exchange. But interestingly enough, the price has not been plummeting at least quite as much on some of the other exchanges bitstamp or or btce for example um interesting. And, uh, and so that i mean that is interesting because what it indicates is that perhaps i mean th- I, again i think it is too early to say and and like you i am also sort of on the fence as to whether this whole bitcoin idea will eventually pan out but i think we're we're living through one of those tests right now because if this is able to to continue in this fashion so that Mt. gox for example basically loses all of its customers because it's uh, its prices drops too much. And the other, um, the other exchanges are able to maintain some sort of integrity, some sort of value in in the, in the their handling of the Bitcoins, then perhaps what we are seeing is this kind of diversified system that, that, like the internet, can't be taken down um, just by bombing one server somewhere because it's all over the place in the same way perhaps right. bits, Bitcoin is, is all over the place. So if you have many different exchanges, that provides the stability. I think that's the theory that a lot of Bitcoin proponents would be saying right now, and perhaps we're living through a test of that right at this moment. So it is kind of interesting to watch this unfold. But certainly, I, um, I'm i not saying that it's a very good investment. I, I would never even look at a, at a currency as an investment. I think when you start speculating on stratospheric rises in a currency, I think that kind of defeats the point of what we really want Bitcoin to be if we want it to be anything, which is just an alternative currency that we can turn to for online transactions. And at this point, right. I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous to, to be conducting transactions in Bitcoin because of the mass un- instability in, in terms of the price swings.
0: You- Let me real quickly go back to the setting the foundation, though. What is the high, the low? Where did Bitcoin start out? I mean, to give the listeners that don't follow Bitcoin kind of an idea of where this $265 is.
1: You know, actually, I, I really don't know where, where it started out. I mean, it, I, it was a very, very, very small amount. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I do know that, for example, there was a a, a pizza that was purchased with Bitcoin um, that I think it was 40000 Bitcoin. No, sorry, 10000 Bitcoin. Um, a, a resident of Jacksonville actually paid 10000 Bitcoin. Um, which at the time was $25 um, to someone on the internet to basically deliver him a pizza. And um, at, at the height of the, the sort of Bitcoin uh, markets uh, a little while ago, back when I think it was uh, around the $1,200 mark or, or somewhere al- around there, that was equivalent to something like 4 or $5 million. So basically, someone <laughs> paid 4 or $5 million for a pizza. Um, uh, but, uh, and it's gone back down since that point. So it did start off at an ex- exceptionally low Rate, um, you could buy bitcoins for for fractions of a penny, and now they've gone up to two hundred sixty five dollars, um, which is uh, again, it's coming down. Certainly, it was up to uh, uh, over a thousand dollars before, um, but now it's it's definitely coming back down. So it's it's just uh, the volatility of the market is kind of what's what's crazy about it at the moment.
2: I was going to ask if you thought if that was a, a strength or a weakness having that currencies of uh, you know volatility basically dependent upon a, a different markets and different networks and how well they work like Mt. Gox well, you know it's, being
1: yeah. it's potentially a good thing at any rate if you're very sure of your of your exchange then then you can really bet your your farm on them or you can All right we'll
0: be back you're... after this three minute break stay tuned to the power hour Joyce Riley, JD and Josh and
1: James Corbett.
0: Talking with James Corbett today, CorbettReport.com. He writes for the International Forecaster also. Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T-Report.com and InternationalForecaster.com. Forecaster.com. Uh, James, one of the things before we get to the suicided or murdered um, uh, bankers, I wanted to talk about the fact that there is this um, uh, problem with Obamacare right now that's just it is just not working. There is a 55000 dollars appendectomy. And uh, the story is what everybody should know about Obamacare, $55,000 uh, appendectomy. And um, you had a comment to make, uh, J.D., about that. Well, yeah, that, that article
2: uh, focuses on the obscene cost of health care in our country. And I had seen a, another uh, headline from another website that, that really, to me, kind of brought it home. And I just wanted to say that real quickly. It was that the, the average hip replacement in the United States costs – okay? In Spain, it costs $7,371, which means you could literally fly to Spain, live in Madrid for two years, learn to speak Spanish, run with the bulls, get trampled, and have your hip replaced, and then still be able to fly home for less than the cost of a hip replacement in the United States. That's a true story. That is a true story.
0: There's some problems with Obamacare. Now, I know you don't care, James, because you're way out of that realm. You don't have to worry about that. But I mean, this is the biggest fraud I think has been perpetrated on the American public other than the financial scam. What are your thoughts?
1: i i think there's really no doubt about that and unfortunately in some ways it's even even more egregious than the financial scam because this is uh, hitting people where it where it hurts the most i mean this is the matters of life and death for a lot of people so this is i mean extremely serious and i think you're exactly right i mean i'm no proponent of socialized medicine but even as far as socialized medicine goes, there is better and worse ways to do it, and Obamacare is pretty much the worst way that's imaginable because it's not even really socialism for the people, even if we could imagine some universe where that would actually work out. It's socialism for the rich and well-connected cronies in the uh, in the major multinationals, and we don't even have to speculate about that. I've covered it on my site um, in an episode of my podcast I did on Rockefeller Medicine, where um, Max Baucus, the uh, senator in charge of passing the the Obamacare bill openly thanked Liz Fowler on the floor of the Senate. Um, she being the former Wellpoint VP, and basically he said that she's been in charge of of basically every piece of uh, healthcare reform legislation in p- passing through the Senate in recent years. Um, which again just goes to show—it's literally it is the the largest healthcare uh, insurance providers that are literally writing these bills and helping to get them passed. So it's no surprise that we have our uh, supposedly democratically elected representatives um, saying things like, "Well, you have to pass the bill to find out what's in it," because uh, they don't bother to read them; they just take yeah. their marching orders directly from the the, the health sh- insurance corporations that uh, that are telling them what to pass. <sighs>
0: All right. Let's move to the issue of the dying bankers. Now, are you seeing anything in this? I mean, are you just saying, well, hey, people die and people commit suicide and five guys, that's no big trend? Or what are you thinking?
1: I uh, well, I reserve judgment. I, I I certainly they could be related, or some of them could be related, or some of them certainly are are suspicious. But I, I I just don't see any evidence at the moment that really connects these in a in a substantial way. And I've heard a lot of kind of vague um, accusations that these these deaths are all connected. But when when I actually start to look up the data of these people and the companies that they're working for, I really don't see anything that's connecting them. Especially when you start. Really breaking it down. Um, so, this, for people who don't know, this, this really started to, to gather steam and momentum when um, a rather grisly death happened in London um, back on January 28th, where uh, Gabriel McGee of JP Morgan, um, who's described as a, a vice president, um, ended up supposedly jumping from the 33rd story of the uh, London headquarters of JP Morgan down to the 9th uh, story southern extension of the building. So, basically, falling 20. Uh, 24 stories um, and to a, a pretty grisly death. Um, and that was immediately reported as a non-suspicious incident, um, which is interesting because there is still really a lot of questions about that death in particular, um, including even when that jump actually took place, whether it was a jump at all. Um, they were originally saying there were lots of witnesses to this, this jump, uh, supposedly, but uh, they're now admitting that there were... There were at, at any rate, we have no confirmed witnesses of this actually happening. So all we have is some, some people who saw the body lying on the, uh, the ninth story of the uh, the southern extension of the building for several hours. And some people have interpreted this as being that it was there several hours before it was discovered at 8.02am. Um, I'm not sure, again, that that's even really been determined. But uh, long story short, the London police have confirmed that they are going to launch, or that they are undergoing an investigation right now of this, and uh, they're still um, still looking into what exactly happened. And I think the, one of the interesting pieces of this puzzle comes from a site called wallstreetonparade.com, which ran an article that noted that McGee Um, had actually emailed his girlfriend on the evening before, on January 27th, to say that he was about to leave the office and he'd see her shortly. And then she didn't receive any further emails from him. She never heard from him again. So that's at least suggestive of the fact that maybe he died on the evening of the 27th and then was only discovered on the morning of the 28th. So a lot of questions surrounding that death. And I think that really is suspicious, especially when you look into the things that J.P. Morgan has been involved in, and especially the London branch of J.P. Morgan with the big, uh, uh, the J.P. Morgan whale that uh, cost the c- company $6 billion. Um, that That's uh, still a lot of investigations ongoing that and there's there's every possibility that he could have been caught up in that or or had some some information regarding that. Although that's speculation at this point. But when you start looking at some of the other people who have been named in this, for example, they're often just sort of called. Oh, there's been a number of other people who have died, uh, uh, senior executives of J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank, and the Federal Reserve. But when you look, for example, at the Deutsche Bank executive, um, I believe his name was Mike Duker. Um, he had actually just retired from Deutsche Bank, so um, really if the uh, suggestion is that he was somehow uh, implicated in some, some, something that's actually going on at Deutsche Bank. I think we'd have to go a little bit further than that. Um, also, the f- the Federal Reserve uh, a- accountant, ha- in fact, was a researcher who worked at the Federal Reserve something like uh, 10 or 15 years prior, but hasn't worked there since. In fact, he was working for a firm called Russell Investment. Um, we also had a, a, a chief of um, Tata Motors, um, w- w- who dying in Bangkok, and that's somehow been lumped in with this. And now the fifth uh, apparent suicide is someone who is working for something called American Title Services, which is residential and commercial services based in Colorado. Um, again, I do not see the, the, the direct connection between all of these various people and the companies that they work for. I don't know if this adds up to anything. Maybe it does. I'm, I'm certainly open to the suggestion, but I just haven't seen anything firm actually linking these people yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to ask you the question and I've been asking everybody this what do you think? Well, first of all, let me open up the phone lines for a few phone calls for you at 85599569238559956923. If you would like to ask James Corbett a question uh, or have a comment on what we've been talking about here, what do you think is the biggest fraud? that's been perpetrated on the people in this country? Or what is it that we're being lied to about now that is probably the most significant thing of all?
1: That's a very difficult question because I deal with these lies and frauds on a daily basis to the point where perhaps I'm drowning in them and can't see the the forest for the trees anymore. Um, And there are just so many lies and manipulations going on at any one time. Um, I think for me the the lie that really underlies the and undergirds the entire system and makes all of the other deceptions possible is the money lie the the, the central bank funny money that they print out of nothing in debt uh, to the the American people um, it, it's it's a ridiculous system that could not possibly have arisen through anything other than just the general ignorance of the electorate and people just not basically knowing how this system works and I think really honestly I, I think if we could inform more people about the, the money creation system and, and how the central banks have really commandeered and completely engineered the economy from the ground up if people could really grasp that simple fact, I think we could at least start to identify the, the, what the underlying problem of all this is and and perhaps even take that, uh, that power of, of money. Back into the hands of of the people.
0: Uh, I, you know, the nine eleven issue of of if we look at events that that have occurred, I still think think that nine eleven is one of the hugest events that we really need to stay on top of. Do people in Japan understand what happened? Do they know? Do they even recognize when you talk about it that maybe there was a problem with nine eleven?
1: Uh, some of them do. Um, certainly, it's not uh, very much on the front and center of Japanese political life in the way that it has been in the United States, obviously, for the past decade and, decade and a half, almost. We're getting to that point. Um, but it is certainly something that's, that's been looked into. And in fact, there was a, a Japanese parliament member here who had been questioning that uh, openly in the Japanese diet uh, just a, a few years ago. And this is something that, for example, there's been 9 11 truth conferences organized here in Japan that I've attended. Um, there's been a lot of material that's been translated into Japanese and uh, and distributed um, books and uh, and papers. For example, the thermitic uh, materials paper of, of Niels Herod et al. has been translated into Japanese and, and made available. So there are certainly pockets of Japanese society that are interested in these things that, that are aware of this. I wouldn't say it's something that, that's kind of massively on the minds of the Japanese or that a lot of people would have any detailed knowledge of. But there are signs that people are aware of it. But certainly, I think just generally speaking i i wouldn't disagree with the fact that 911 has been one of the foundational events of of the age that we're living in and and really has to be confronted head on Um, and exposed for the lie that it is so that we can stop the killing and bloodshed and the mania that continues to go on in the name of 9-11. And, of course, it really is just used as an excuse for things that were, in many cases, already going on before this uh, 9-11 even occurred. But it, it has been a convenient excuse for them to basically roll out the police state and the overt kind of fascist agenda that's going on in the United States and many other countries besides. And so I think it really does need to be confronted head on.
0: Without a doubt, absolutely without a doubt. John, do we have any callers for um, our guest today, James Corbett? We don't have any calls. Well, I can't believe that everybody's always wanting to talk to you, and then I give you a chance, and I give them a chance, and uh, maybe they didn't hear it. Eight five five nine nine. No, no, I don't think it's that. I think that eight five five nine nine five sixty nine twenty three eight five five nine nine five. 6923. If you would like to talk to James Corbett, what do you think is going to happen with gold in the commodities market? Is it something that anybody should get excited about the fact that it's up to 1328 or whatever it is right now?
1: Um, Well, uh, yes, uh, cautiously so, because again, um, if anything has been proven in the past several years, it's that uh, these markets are so, again, so thoroughly manipulated that I don't really necessarily trust that any particular um, spike in, in gold price is going to be the spike. Um, I, again, I think once the once the, the the return to economic reality happens and the bubble really bursts in terms of the the, the fraud that's been perpetrated and uh, and gold prices start reaching their their market equilibrium, I think we'll we'll know about that. There won't be any question about it once it really happens in earnest. Um, the little blips upward or downward that happen along the way I think are just kind of fodder for for uh, speculation and and and, uh, and people to basically, just chat about, but I don't think it's it It amounts to a whole lot. Uh, I, I was reading a Bloomberg article today that was attempting to explain why gold suddenly kind of exploded in the last week or so and trying to put it on fears of the slowdown in the US economy, etc. But <clears throat> but there are other factors that don't necessarily play into that. We haven't seen large uh, changes in the bond yields, for example, that might indicate some sort of flight to safety going on right now or, or anything of that sort. So it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And a lot of people are talking about it, but again I think the the gold manipulation is just so so blatant that I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about each blip upward and downward in the in the US dollar price. Um, For people who want more on the gold manipulation and how it actually works, there was an excellent article that uh, Paul Craig Roberts wrote in recent uh, weeks along with Dave Kranzler that's up on his site, uh, paulcraigroberts.org, called The Hows and Whys of Gold Price Manipulation. And they break it down in, in quite a bit of detail there. So if people are interested in how that actually works, they can go there for more information.
0: All right. Let's go to Peter. And the jam, lines are jammed now, so obviously uh, they just didn't hear it. Peter, wherever you are, I don't know where you are. Maryland. Welcome to the Power Hour, Maryland. Go ahead, please, Peter. You're on okay, the air. Okay,
2: Mr. Corbett, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I read a report probably about three weeks ago that indicated that
0: the uh, petro dollar is sort of dying, and the petro yawn is gaining pace and overtaking the petro dollar. Can you comment on that combination?
1: Well, I would agree that the petrodollar is in decline. And I think one of the most interesting developments we've seen in that is the decoupling of uh, the US and Saudi Arabia in recent months. We've definitely seen some, some diplomatic uh, tensions rising between them. And of course, that's the nexus of this whole petrodollar regime. For people who don't know, the petrodollar arose in the 1970s when Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard officially and finally ended that. They're, they needed a way to prop up the US dollar. So basically, uh, they got the Saudis to, to agree to price their oil in dollars and that's what props up the price and that's kind of decoupling at the moment and attendant with that we see the rise of the yuan so maybe we'll talk about that on the other side of the break
0: all right thank you very much peter for the uh, phone call we'll be right back after this three minute break john of missouri wayne dave we'll try to get to all of you after this three minute break stay tuned george riley <laughs> Welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. 54 minutes after the hour, we're going to be t- uh, joined by Stan Deo in the next hour. We're going to talk about the earthquakes in Oklahoma Et Al, all the other places where they have been occurring. Um, is, is there anything else you wanted to add regarding the Yuan, um, James?
1: I I just wanted to address the uh, the idea of the petro yuan, which was what the uh, the caller brought up, and and certainly I think we do see the long, slow, steady rise of the yuan as as eventually some sort of competitive currency on the world stage. It's still I think got a long way to go, and it's still not even fully convertible, so it it really isn't going to replace the dollar as the world reserve currency anytime in the immediate future. But the idea of the petro yuan is is interesting um, because of course OPEC, as I was saying, prices their their oil transactions in dollars, but uh, right now. Uh, Russia and Iran are already pricing their oil sales to China in yuan, and there is talk that Venezuela is going to follow, and perhaps some other countries. Um, it it could start to form a sort of trading block of oil um, being traded in yuan, which could start the genesis of what could one day become a petro yuan. I think we're still a very far away away from that, and it would take a pretty sizable geopolitical shift to get there. But I mean, it's at least interesting to to keep our eye on as a potential for the. the, the coming decade
0: all right let's go to john in missouri john you're on the air go ahead please what's on your mind
2: appreciate it yeah i tell you what i'm glad that josh talked about the c deal
1: um i'll send you an email i'd like to know more about where and the wear maybe i can see josh and jd down there we have a chat but the, you know he's talking about the
2: bitcoin and the concern that i have is as long as there's a manipulation people can buy short sell all that I don't see a big change coming out of any of it, or am I mis- missing it?
1: No, I think that's I think you're pretty much right on about that because I think what part of the problem here is that what uh, Mt. Gox admitted to, the the Bitcoin exchange that has uh, really plummeted in recent days, what they admitted to is that uh, the, partly there was a, a denial of service attack that uh, helped to uh, to basically uh, uh, they had to halt their services because of that for for a period of time, and that's part of what brought this plunge about. There was also a a type of uh, problem in the Bitcoin protocol itself that was allowing people to make the same trend action twice and sending the the data twice, which was causing problems. So they had to suspend service for that. Um, But I think the denial of service attack is interesting because if someone were, for example, shorting um, the Bitcoin price on a given exchange and then running a denial of service attack to make that price plummet, yeah, certainly speculators could make money. And that's why I think when we have a currency that is primarily at this point being viewed as a speculative investment, that's a real problem because then people will be manipulating it and trying to bring it down in, in order to make money on the shorts and things like that. So I, I am extremely, again, extremely hesitant right now, and I'm certainly not jumping all in with uh, Bitcoin at this point because, again, it's just um, it's too 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 nascent, a, t- a technology and a, and a thing, um, and people are still treating it as a, as a speculative investment, and I think that's just the wrong way of approaching it.
0: Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, John, for the phone call. Wayne in Tennessee. Wayne, you're on the air. Go ahead, please, with James Corbett.
2: Nicole. Uh, James, this question is for you, and it's pertaining to Bitcoin. Uh, I'm a country boy, and I'm not real smart about these things, but I understand that J.P. Morgan owns the intellectual rights to uh, Bitcoin, let's say, or virtual coin. Uh, and my question is, is, it appears that this is more like a
1: social engineering test to segregate A section of the intellectual economy from the common man, like separating the uh, the uh, internet sales from the brick and mortar, and it's kind of a test to see if they could segregate a large chunk of the economy. I'll hang up and take your answer, thanks. Well, thank you for that question, and I think that's a that's a good way of putting it, actually, because I think that puts it in a in a perspective people can can kind of touch and feel and understand. Uh, on the J P Morgan um, s- story, I think there's a, some wires crossed there. J P Morgan has patented a type of uh, digital wallet, uh, cryptocurrency competitor to Bitcoin, but they don't have uh, ownership of Bitcoin protocol or anything like that. Sort.
0: All right, we'll be back. We've got a one minute, 10 second break, then we've got about three more minutes to take your calls with James Corbett. Stay tuned to the Power Hour, George. Welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. Caring about your world. Thank you, Wayne, for that uh, uh, for that phone call. That question well, sounds pretty smart. Our listeners are very smart. Let's go to Dave in New York. Dave, uh, you're on the air with James Corbett. Go ahead, please, Dave. James, uh, I don't know if this is a heads-up
2: or not, but two weeks ago, on a Friday, two Fridays ago, uh, Ron Paul had a little segment called Ron Paul's America, mm-hmm. and he mentioned that uh, MIT did a study and that it wasn't the Syrian government that gassed the people, it was the rebels. He uh, equated it to being a false flag, similar to Kuwait and the Gulf of Tonkin, and you'd think that it makes national news, and I haven't heard a deep sense.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. No, you're right. I I did see that. It's a report called Possible Implications of Faulty US Technical Intelligence that was released by MIT a couple of weeks ago um and uh it basically was written uh, a very technical study showing that the uh, the intelligence on the Syrian attack that the US was trying to pump out in the wake of that was false and uh, that it was quite possibly, they didn't exactly come out and say it was a false flag attack, but it, it that's what uh, the evidence really points to as we've been saying all along. So just another uh, data point in the, in the bigger picture there. So uh, you're exactly right about that. I, w- I did tweet about it at the time. I put it in my subscriber newsletter, so anyone who's following the Corbett Report very closely would know about that, but you're exactly right. It's been almost completely overlooked in the mainstream media. Surprise, surprise. Um, although, it, interestingly enough, RT was covering it, and that's where I first saw about that uh, early Last month. So so it is out there. And again, it's just another data point that shows that the uh, Syrian chemical weapons attack was almost certainly a false flag launched by the rebels themselves.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Dave, in New York. Just disgusting. Francis, in North Carolina, you're on with James Corbett. Go ahead, please, Francis.
2: Hey, uh, this is probably more appropriate for your next guest, uh, Joyce. However, since it parallels with, well, somewhat parallels with uh, the financial scene. Uh, 9-11 be an example of that, since there was a lot of uh, financial shenanigans going on just before that event occurred. My question to James is Is this, do you see a parallel of things of a financial situation going on at the same time or just before various uh, fluky weather that's being uh, geoengineered and hitting various parts of the country at various uh, times?
1: Uh, yes, actually, that's a that's a very perceptive question, and um, because there there have been documented links um, between some of the the companies that actually provide um, financial speculation on weather events and the uh, the geoengineering program, and I did have someone on my program um, to actually discuss those links, uh, not, uh, maybe a year two years ago. And I can't remember his name <laughs> off the top of my head. So I'm going to have to look in my archives and see if I can get that for you. Um, and when I archive uh, this this program on my website, I'll put the link in there so um, so people can can stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for that. But yes, I think you're right. There is um, speculation that goes on over various weather events. And obviously that pertains to insurance and all sorts of things like that. And money is being made off of these large weather events. And geoengineering is going on that does manipulate weather uh, patterns so um so i think we have to put two and two together and realize that people are making money off the weather which is a crazy um, concept but it is happening
0: thank you very thank much you. francis for the phone call and you have trouble james figuring out which is the biggest lie we've been told i mean my goodness look how many we have to choose from yeah it's ab- it's it's unbelievable by the way real quickly on fukushima uh your thoughts are you hearing any more about it in japan
1: Yes, of course, there's still always news coming out. In fact, I just posted up the Fukushima update today. Um, more water leaks found in the barriers around the the uh, the tanks that are holding the contaminated water at the plant. Um, there's been some some other high uh, readings that have been detected in recent days, including record high cesium levels at re- Reactor 1. Um, again, lots of things happening. And in one of the worrying signs that, that happened recently, there was a Tokyo uh, gubernatorial race that was recently run by a pro-nuclear candidate. So, uh, so the anti-nuclear crowd lost out on that election, um, which is a worrying sign, again, um, that the Japanese politics is going in a bad direction. Yeah.
0: Unbelievable. Thank you so much for being such a classy guest. Thank you for being a guest on the Power Hour today. We really appreciate you appreciate at the Power you. Hour. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have a blessed day. We'll be back in three minutes.